Welcome, everybody. Uh, this is eavesdropping at the movies, and we've just come from seeing The Shape of Water. I'm Jose. I'm Mike. Okay. <laughs> there was applause at the end. A little bit. There was well, it began with one person, and it quickly escalated <laughs> to maybe five. Ooh. So it wasn't like, uh, you know, it wasn't like a play or anything. No. But I thought, that, you know, that was quite extraordinary. And it wasn't a full cinema. No. Um, yeah, so it was, uh, I mean, I don't know how long it's been out in this country, Shape of Water. I imagine it's been no longer than a week, actually. Yeah, probably. Yes, yeah, it must have only just, let me just double check. Because it's not been on the on the the websites for long. So it's very disappointing that you know this film had actually a relatively small audience for uh, Wednesday night. Feb fourteenth. So a week. A week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, anyway, I thought it was I. I thought it was marvelous. Um, yeah, I, it it um it grabbed me after all the stuff that had been in the trailer. So. What what I expected from the trailer right. was um, the story of th- this woman who is a cleaner in a sort of military scientific research facility, mm. um, and this creature gets brought in, and it's kind of creature from the Black Lagoonish looking mm. sort of humanoid amphibian thing, mm. and she kind of falls in love with it, yes. and she somehow steals it and, and saves it from mm. the terrible experimenters. That's what I got from the trailer. And that's really the first third of the film, probably. Yes. Yeah, and it was after that that it grabbed me. Yes. Um, I mean, the film is very well structured, really. It's kind of... It's, it's a story about these, these outcasts. Um, and it's a story about a period, really. So the story revolves around Sally Hawkins, who's best friends with her gay, middle-aged already too old neighbor who's basically lost his job, lost his function in society and can't find love. So there, and she's deaf. No, uh, she's mute. So she's mute. Uh, and as a result of some accident that's had these scratches on her neck. It, it's, um, it's suggested, I forget exactly. There's a line that alludes to it, uh, an operation done to her when she was a child. Yes. That seems to have removed her voice box. Yes. Um, and it leaves these three scars on her neck that mm. kind of resemble gills. Yes. So, and her best friend is another cleaner played by Octavia Spencer. So really, it's like a black woman, a deaf, sorry, a, a, a mute woman, and a gay man, really. So on the one hand, you have that. On the other hand... You know, you have this military establishment that has captured this creature who's intelligent, sentient, and, you know, was worshipped as a god where, where they found him. And they're torturing him. Uh, and they're basically kind of torturing him because they're in competition with Russia to see who gets to space first. And Russia has sent a dog, so they want to find out what they can learn from this creature that will give them... Uh, 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 more information than the Russians have to, yeah, to do this. Yeah. Michael Shannon is uh, the person who brings uh, the creature in. He's an archetypal American of this period, as is his family. Much is made of that. So, you know, you're shown him reading books about the power of positive thinking and, you know, everything (laughs) has to be positive and, 
you know, uh, uh, and he's got a wife and children and they live in suburbia and he buys a teal Cadillac. Um, so, uh, you know, quite something is made of that, really. And on the other hand, he's kind of brutal and unthinking. And he's the one who's torturing the creature. And um, the Sally Hawkins character, who is a cleaner, begins to communicate with the creature, finds a way of communicating. And basically, when she finds out that he's about to be destroyed, she rescues him, along with the gay man and uh, the black best friend, brings him home. And then they not only fall in love, but they consummate that love. A very disappointing off-screen. <laughs> yes, for those of you who've been bitching about, call me by your name. <laughs> uh, so I, I, you know, I, I, I go back to this thing that Guillermo del Toro says about, you know, that films they have to have eye protein. Yeah, and by that he doesn't just mean eye candy. It's not that the images have to be beautiful. They have to feed you somehow, right? And I think actually this film is full of like striking, beautiful, poetic, evocative imagery. It's like a healthy alternative to eye candy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Fiber optics. I mean, it's really beautiful, you must admit. Like, oh, yeah. Um, you know, and actually, you know, I, I wonder how it's shot because the images have a density and a texture, you know, that you rarely see in cinema now. It's beautifully shot by... Dan Lauston. Yes. A Danish cinematographer. Yes. I'm not very familiar with him, except that he has ostensibly... Had, had... Uh, he was the DOP on John Wick Chapter 2. Mm. Uh, he which shot... Seen, which is great. He shot... Um... Mimic, you said earlier. Yeah, Mimic in 1997, yes. I think. Um... Which is another Del film. And uh, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, he was the DOP on that in 2003. Right. And he's done lots of things in between, but it's it's... Seems to be on the smaller side and small films you haven't heard of or, or uh, uh, Danish films. This is beautiful, I think. Um, it's exquisite. So, so, I mean, there were moments where I almost gasped with pleasure, really. You know, so right at the beginning, the moment where she and her neighbor begin to do a kind of a, a, a soft shoe dancing, or, yeah, like while they're sitting yeah. down. I thought that was just like, you know, there are moments where the film becomes magical, really, where they, it takes a leap into another dimension. And for me, that was one of them. And actually, I also noticed how, you remember the beginning of the film where, you know, there's this tracking shot and you go into this corridor and the door opens and you have this figure who's sleeping and floating on water, right? It's the opening shot of the film. It's the opening shot of the film. And I thought that was almost like Cirque. You know, the beginning of Written on the Wind, where, you know, you have leaves flying inside the house. And, you know, so it's almost like opera. It's poetic. It's not meant to be realism. It's like you're already entering kind of, you know, a another level of, you know, another imaginary level of 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 of, of poetry, really. It's a dreamlike sort of realm. Uh, yeah, so. yeah. And I thought that was kind of just, you know, beautiful. Yeah. Um, the use of colour in the film kind of evokes that as well. For like the whole film, apart from a few points where there's sunlight, um, and so the film is kind of bathed in orange at that point, the, the entire film is all in 
teal and green and blue and there's aquamarine and these under the whole film feels underwater yes. it feels like um, there's a game called Bioshock which is I think it's got to be a reference point in here somewhere because it's it's about this underwater society that was built it's, it, it's different for lots of reasons it was about hubris and a failed society but it evokes this kind of art deco underwater kind of very bizarre thing of like like a real world but twisted in just one sort of weird visual way. Mm. It gives everything a different tone. The film has a weird look because on the one hand, it's meant to be said in the early 60s. Mm. Yeah, and you hear Kennedy's voice, I think, at some point. And they're always talking about going into space and everyone's dressed like madmen. So. Yeah, and, you know, kind of... I think they talk about the Jetsons and it's all the future and so on. But on the other hand, most of the imagery to me, almost evoked the 1930s, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, the gay neighbor uh, had, you know, used to be an illustrator that drew Saturday e- evening post type of covers, right? That type of, you know, American Pie type of artwork, rosy cheek, you know. Um, and the inside of that military center, it really looked like steampunky almost, like, you yeah. know, but kind of... So, you know, a combination of 1930s, but like corrugated iron and this kind of green institutional look. Um, I mean, kind of very evocative, but it's almost like there was a disjuncture of periods there that, you know, kind of the setting was meant to be early 1960s. And you can see how it is, but the spirit of it is mm, earlier yes. than that, you know. Um, and I thought that was all quite magical, really. I, I loved the... Uh, and, the and they're constantly watching uh, black and white movies on TV as well. Yes. And that, that's very evocative of, of that earlier period. Yes, and actually I thought that was an interesting choice because I realised at some point that they're not just kind of black and white films, mm. but, you know, they're almost all of them are 20th Century Fox musicals. Yeah, so you have Shirley Temple and Bill Bojangles, and you have Alice Faye uh, singing very beautifully, I must say. And then you have Betty Grable singing as well, and you have Carmen Miranda, right? And all of those people are all Fox musicals, which are very interesting because they were considered, like, the trashiest musicals, right? It's not like, it's not MGM, you know, uh, uh, it's not even Warner's, right? This is a Fox Searchlight picture. Shape of Water. Ah, so, well, it might have something to do with that. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, because actually it's very interesting because the moment of transformation, the moment where, you know, she begins to dance with the monster, which I thought it was beautiful, but I also thought it could have been done better. You know, the set in that uh, is taken directly from Anastair and Rogers' uh, uh, um, uh, a number uh, from one of their RKO musicals. It's the Let's Face the Music, Let's Face the Music and Dance number, mm. right? That fantastic Art Deco set. Yeah, mm. that's that's a direct steal from that. But it was very interesting that you know they're overtly using clips from all these 20th century Fox musicals, but when they really want the magic, <laughs> they go to Fred and Ginger. <laughs> so um, anyway, what did you think? Well, I mean, I just, what um, did you not like about it? Well, it's it's. Uh, I liked it, right? I, I liked it, but it, I just I, I spent the first, like, say, sort of third of the film, um, thinking that it 
it wasn't it didn't feel complex enough for me early on which is not to say that like a film has to be complex but for some reason I, I thought early on it was so simple in the its characters and tone seemed a little too basic to me and it was only once the the fish got out the tank and got taken home and then the love started to blossom between the two of them that's when the film became kind of became something quite special mm. to me um but it kind of it, it interested me before then but it it, it sets up this thing of like there's the monster has been captured by, uh, by the Americans, and they want to sort of experiment on it. And and you've got the Russians who uh, have got a mole played by Michael Stuhlberg, who's one of the scientists. He's he's a he's a Russian mole, um, who is, you know wants to steal the information or, or steal this creature. But then on the other hand, it's kind of pushed to the background, like that is the secondary part of the story. And actually, what's interesting about the film is that it. Um, it has this behind-the-scenes feel to it. When you see a film about monster in a military facility, it's always about the monster in the military facility, and it's about the what they're going to do to it, and it's really plot-heavy. And this is about the people in the back of the scene cleaning up after everybody else. You know, literally these two women come in. They said, "You've got twenty minutes in here to clean up all this blood because the monster's done something." Now, any other film would be showing you what the monster got up to. Like that would be the exciting thing. That's right. So that's what's really that. That's that's the kind of. That is really interesting, and that's a really nice sort of twist on the on the idea. And the other thing is that the monster, normally a film with a monster, um, at least these days, uh, is very keen to hide the monster from you, mm. you know, and uh, and build suspense and tension. And this hides the monster for about a second, yes. and then like basically it brings it in in a tank, and you don't really see it, and it it punches the glass, and it's Ugh. And then the second time you see it, it just shows up. And it's not even a really... It's a shot from kind of down below looking up at Sally Hawkins and the creature. So it's this kind of beautiful moment. But it's not like... There's no tension to it. It's not done as this kind of, oh, oh my God, are we going to see it or not? It just shows up. Yeah. And from then on, it's quite quotidian. Like, the monster is just there, hanging out with Sally Hawkins, learning to eat eggs. Yes. Except they then do wonderful, wonderful things with it, right? Because, you know, so on the one hand, you, you know, I agree with you. It shows up and so on. But as the film proceeds, the monster is revealed to you as something else. So for example, you get its expressions, you get the way that its gills kind of move, you get the way that the shape of its head kind of reacts when it's, yeah, you, the coloring when, when it's stroked, right? Mm. Kind of, you know, there are all these marvelous kind of moments that arise from it. Right, absolutely. But actually the point is that to have to do that, the film has to just start it off as, it has to introduce it as a character as opposed to, yes. as opposed to uh, a plot device or whatever. Like, so it has to start off as saying like, you just have to accept that this is a character. So we're going to introduce it like anything else. Yes. That's what, and so from then on, you, it, it develops into a character. Yes. Uh, it, it you know it develops all these all these qualities that you say and and you learn about it and because yeah. if if it's if the film wants to spend a long time going oh what's the monster that's actually not the point of the film which is just to say that actually I think it's kind of novel and you know it, because the film the film evokes sort of uh, it evokes fairy tale on the one hand it's got this it's this kind of Beauty and the Beast sort of story and and I think it, the Little Mermaid as well in a kind of inversion but also like um, uh, those monster movies from the 50s like like Creature from the Black Lagoon yes. I mean the, the, the design of the monster is 
so clearly drawn on that, you know, uh, and, and, and similar movies. But, like, those movies never had a love story, or at least if they were, you had to look for it. But, like, this is a very overt story. We're saying this is, this is a classic movie monster. We're doing something different with it. Yes. I think the film is very interesting because I think you're right. Like, so, so the film is really about the Sally Hawkins character, right? And then, kind of, there's all these relationships that revolve around her. You know, the primary one being the Octavia Spencer character, yeah, the, the woman she works with, yeah. because that gets repeated over and over again, right? Uh, um, arguably, the Robert Jenkins gay... Richard be- Jenkins. The Richard Jenkins best friend is at least as important, I would argue, you know? Uh, and then, of course, Michael Shannon is the antagonist, mm-hmm. and he's fantastic. I think he's my favorite American actor of the moment. I just love looking at him, mm-hmm. even in this part, which is really very one-dimensional, right? Yeah. Um, but he does it beautifully. Um, and then you get kind of peripheral things. And there's this stuff about the Russian spy. You know, there's Octavia Spencer's husband. Yeah, that kind of is really the, the, the theater owner who lives downstairs and runs a cinema. They live above a cinema. Yeah, that's kind of basically, you know, the main relationships in the film. And really the structure of the film is built around those relationships and how how they change. I think that's all beautifully done, except I was very disappointed by the character of the gay best friend. He's a complete drip. <laughs> you know, there's no way of putting yes, it. I, um, I kind of thought you might say that. I mean, I, 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 I said to you early on, oh, I think he might be gay in a kind of way. Like, it's so obvious that he's gay very early on. And it's not to say that the film is doing great pains to hide it. It, it pretty much tells you straight away. But like, when the first time I saw him with the cats on his own apartment, I thought, actually, this is not the most positive portrayal of a gay character I've ever seen in my life. Well, I didn't even think about that. I just thought they could have made him so much more fun, mm. right? Like, I mean, he is just a bit of a drip. He's just boring, really. So, you know, he's this guy who lives alone, you know, kind of, he's lost his job. There's no hope of him getting his job back. Um, and really, like, you know, his best friend is this mute woman. And he kind of is, has a crush on this guy who sells the worst pie, uh, uh, you know, in, what is it said, Baltimore? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so kind of, you know, it's just, I mean, I would have loved it if they've made him like, a, you know, maybe middle-aged, but like a raving queen or, you know, I don't know, <laughs> something more exciting, right? Like, it is just, it's, you know, it, I'm not saying that it's positive or negative or anything. It's just mm-hmm. dull. Yeah, I sort of see. I mean, I kind of I liked him as a person. I like seeing him on screen, and maybe that's because I like Richard Jenkins. I love Richard Jenkins the bits. I think he's fantastic, and I think he's a good fit for the character. Um, And what I did like about him was that it's it's, as opposed to it being anything really brash or overt or big, he just gets this kind of um, he's basically drawn in to Sally Hawkins' plan to save the creature and release Mm. it into the sea. and he just gets this kind of slight emboldenment by it, you know, and he kind of he learns to have a little bit of respect for himself. Mm. Um, and he gets he gets a, just a moment of sort of pride in something that he's done. They could have done all of that yeah. and made that character more fun. You know, like Octavia Spencer's fun. But I think, it's, I think the fact that he's a drip, uh, you're right, he is a drip, but then that, that kind of... Uh, amplifies that actually it's important that he's been able to take control of something. No, I, I agree with you. I think that's what the film is trying to do. Uh, you know, 
But I just think he could have done that better. Sure. You know, to me, that's like a kind of a fault in the film, actually. Um, but that said, I loved it, you know, and, and, I, and I do find it very poetic. So I think, for example, and I have to think about it a bit more, but I thought it was interesting that, for example, the, the scars on her neck that you could see have been the bane of her life and that is, you know, possibly responsible for her losing her voice and so on mm. is actually what then, you know, transforms into gills, of the, you know, so she could swim underwater, yeah. right? So kind of her, her big cross or handicap has become the thing that allows her to breathe and form a new life. But, you know, I thought that was wonderful. Yeah, although I did think in the time of the character, you'd think if, maybe this is a nitpick or, or just a, a, a choice, but... Um, because when anyone goes near her neck or even gets close to looking at them, she kind of, she flinches and shines mm-hmm. away. But um, but her hair is not long enough to cover them very effectively. You'd think that like, she would really go to paint to cover them up if she was that. I, I don't That's know. something that I just did kind of slightly niggle about the character. Like I thought, but you can see them all the time, these gills, mm-hmm. these gills, these scars. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I kind of, I, I, yeah, I don't know about that. I love Sally Hawkins' playing. Uh, in it, I thought she was like superb, and that you know she had kind of like. Well, it's all gesture. There's no, there's no dialogue for. Her. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it's a silent movie performance for. Her. Yeah, and it's and she's fantastic. She she's beautifully evocative. Actually, she really really fits the role and looks just perfect for it. Slightly downtrodden, but uh, sort of sort of lives within herself. Mm. And then she comes alive, and when she explains, because she speaks the sign language, and when she explains to the neighbor character. You know why? Why she's taken with this creature that he doesn't under, he doesn't understand the way everyone else does the way in which I'm incomplete. Mm. He just sees me for me. Yes. You know, like that, it makes perfect sense, and she she evokes that so beautifully. Mm. I love the way that the film is at almost every moment. So on the one hand, it's a monster movie. Uh, on the other hand, it's like a kind of a cold war, a little bit of a pot boiler. Uh, but actually what makes it special is the way that the, the film moves from realms, like, like a musical, right? That kind of, you know, there is like, you know, one level of plot happening and then the film moves onto another realm, which is a realm of emotion and feeling, you know, and trying to find a way of expressing that. Well, actually, I mean, really what that is, it's a realm of fantasy. Yes. It's a realm of things that don't make any... Re- like when she floods the bathroom... Yes. So she keeps she keeps the creature in, in her bath and then she she puts towels down by the door and she turns all the taps on and the room fills up. Now that's totally unrealistic, right? Yes. But okay, they show that You know from, you would flood the <laughs> Right. Well they, they it would never fill up that much. You couldn't turn the taps on enough no, to, no. you know what I mean? And and they show that like the water's spilling out through the door, through the cracks in the door, but like it's still it's it's a leap of faith that you take, but the, but the film doesn't have to encourage you very hard to take it because yes. it's so beautiful. Yes. And 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 so when you see them floating around, submerged in this room that's full in of love, water, <laughs> and love, and, and and naked and swimming, it's you know it, you buy it completely. You don't know, or, or you're very aware of how silly it is, but this, that's the point. It doesn't matter. Yes. It's a beautiful image, and it's expressing something really beautiful. And you buy into the expressiveness of it. Right. Uh, you understand it. Um, yeah, to me, I thought I thought it was um, it was very beautiful, and I thought also that I would like to see it again, right? Because, but I'd like to see it again almost on a small screen. I mean, it very much you know needs to be seen on a big screen, but it's almost like it's a film that I kind of 
like to look at those images at leisure, you know? Mm. I kind of like to look at them on a DVD and stop and rewind and, you know, mm. and stop and rewind. I think it's just, like, amazing yeah. what, what Yes, done. full of really beautifully, deliberately, delicately composed shots. Yes. Um, on the other hand, I think people have been finding it kind of unsatisfying in some way, or, you know, it's definitely... You know, I've been hearing that it's a bit of a marmite film, that some people just kind of love it, and other people kind of, you know, think it's a bit overhyped. And actually, I think in a way, I could understand both positions, you know, mm-hmm. because I, I think, like, I just, you know, I just swooned. And actually, I also, uh, um, what's the word? Revolted, right? <laughs> like a, you were making I, noise throughout. You were going, oh, ooh, ah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, um, there were bits of body horror in it that you really responded to, where he pulls his fingers off. Yes, I did. Yes, yeah, so, yeah. again, it's a it's a disfigured villain thing where he's, he's, he's two fingers are bitten off right at the start by this creature, and they try and reattach them, but they just necrotize and, and turn black. Yes, and he uses them as this evil prop. Yes. to intimidate people. Yes, and it smells, and you know, it's creepy, and you know. So I, I really responded to all of the horror elements of it, actually. Um, so, so I understand, yeah. But I also think that at the core, there's some, there's something in the narrative through line that doesn't quite cohere for me in some level. And I haven't thought, you know, I can't think of why exactly. I think... What is it that doesn't cohere, Keith? I, so, you know, there were all these moments that I swooned and I, you know, and I was repulsed and, and all of that. But I, there, there were things that just... Like, again, you know, the gay guy, the whole thing at the pie counter, you know, um, actually even Octavia's relationship with her husband, you know, I kind of, there were just some slight things that were slightly of that I didn't respond to, you know. I, I agree. And I think that's actually one of the reasons I didn't really respond to the first third of the film, because I think that's where, that's certainly where the, the pie guy is at his most active. Mm. And um, and it just, it it's not creative or inventive or expressive enough mm. those points they, they feel a little bit um they feel like functional to just yes. to, just to achieve certain things later on they don't really feel like they're really valuable i think i think there's a problem with characterization in this film mm. you know that um so i would have liked the gay guy not necessarily to be different but just to be more, to be more complex and rounded, to have more of a sense of humor yeah. or, you know, uh, and actually that applies to the Michael Shannon character. Yeah. You know, I would have liked him to have been, I don't know, seen him be nice to his children. I think it applies to everyone apart from Sally Hawkins. Exactly. Character. Right. So, so I think that's what prevents it from being truly great to me, though it has some some extraordinarily beautiful things. Yeah. What do you think? Apart with the exception of Sally Hawkins character... Uh, Eliza, all the characters feel like they have been designed to fulfil functions in the story, as opposed to actually express very much more than that. Yes, you know, or if they have, then they they fail at it. Yes, um, because they do function in their plot roles perfectly well, and you understand the story is great, but actually, they you don't buy into them very much. So I think this is something unique and beautiful and poetic and really quite extraordinary. 
And yet, paradoxically, at the same time, you feel that it's not quite great, that it's not as great as it could have and should have been. You know? mm-hmm. So an extraordinary achievement in comparison to almost everything else, really, that we've seen this year, but not, but still with aspects that are unsatisfying. Uh, at the BAFTAs, it was nominated... Let's have a quick... At the BAFTAs, it was nominated 12 times and won three awards the other day. Yes. It won... Uh, Best Direction, Guillermo del Toro. Yes. Best Music, and uh, uh, Alexandre Desplat, I believe is how you pronounce it. Uh-huh. Uh, and Best Production Design, Paul Denham, Osprey, Shane Rio, and Jeff Melvin. I think all of those are are deserved. Um, it's a big competition. I don't, I don't think music is. I don't think that's the best music. Oh, I love the music. Um, I Not the score. I think the, the use the use of songs and music from musicals. Yes, is beautiful and great. But I actually think the score. Well, it's not memorable. It's. Um, well, I loved it because it but... sets up. It sets up that period and that mood, and actually, and it does it in a kind of a slightly disjunctive way, mm-hmm. right? So on the one hand, it's really meant to evoke 40s music, but played in the 60s, right? So, and it actually has almost too much of a Latin beat in moments, <laughs> right? So kind of, you know, there's something about the movie that both sets a period and sets the distance from the period that I quite liked. Yeah, fair enough. I'll have to listen to the score wow. uh, on my own time. The Academy Awards that it's up for, uh, it's got 13 nominations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's have a, a quick look through. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress for Sally Hawkins, Best Supporting Actor for Richard Jenkins, Best Supporting Actress for Octavia Spencer, uh, Best Original Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Costume Design, Best Film Editing, Best Original Score, Best Production Design, Best Sound Editing, and Best Sound Mixing. I would love it to win for Best Director. Um, do you think it deserves Best Director? I do. I think it's, it's just beautifully directed. Beyond I, Paul Thomas Anderson, which you were, I think, previously suggesting was your favourite? Well, I think, I think Thomas Anderson... I, I, I would like Phantom Thread to win as Best Film. Okay. Um, but I, I would like Guillermo del Toro to win as Best Director. Um, and I would like Octavia Spencer to win uh, um, for Best Supporting Actress. And um, I would like uh, uh, the cinematographer to win, actually. Yeah. I think this is the best cinematography I've seen this year. Um, that would, yeah, that would be my feeling. Better than uh, we were saying Blade Runner for cinematography, hitherto. We were. It's a tough um, one, isn't it? It's really it is, close. It is a tough one. It's just, I mean, I don't know how they achieve this, but this film, it really has a depth and a texture. It's almost like, you know, so on the one hand, like sometimes the images evoke, you know, comic books comes to life. And I think actually Michael Shannon's face is so interesting with that because... It's all planes, really. You could imagine him being drawn as a, as a comic book character. But the lighting gives this texture. It's almost like you could touch those shirts or something. It, mm. The film has a depth of 
image that I, that I, the others don't have. Well, it, um, I certainly noted that it uses uh, fairly wide-angle lenses quite a lot of the time. Mm. So in, in terms of literally the depth of the, the set and the world... Um, that that that's emphasised. You know, characters. Some characters are foregrounded very, mm. uh, very much, and, and the backgrounds kind of shoot off into the distance. So the world kind of feels slightly distorted, but but deep and and yeah, you know, sort of big, but at the same time, sort of claustrophobic in some respects. Like when the character is right up close to the camera, that's really emphasised too. Mm, yes, yeah. I mean, yeah, I yes, I see that. But what I was referring more, it's just like. A richness, a, a richness mm-hmm. re- that that you once took for granted in a kind of you know nineteen fifty celluloid film shot on celluloid, and that has been you know quite lacking recently. And I don't know if they shot this on celluloid or not, but it has that that depth of color and image that you get. Yeah, the color has certainly been emphasized. Yeah, being kind of amplified. I think. Um, um, so it certainly appears to me. I mean, the color is, is used so heavily, and, and as we said before, I think we said in, in, when we were talking about Blade Runner, in fact, the, the use of uh, a comic book style, which is which is single color or or a, a kind of quite tight color palette over entire scenes that gives a feeling of cogency mm. to certain scenes or certain locations um, is really used in this. Mm. Like every, and they make a point of it, like they talk about the color. Like he goes to get, he buys that Cadillac. Yes, and he and he says it's teal. He yeah. says, "Oh, it looks green to me." And then he starts calling it teal. Yeah, and like it, and and the, and it just blends into the background because everything in that place is teal. Yes, yeah. and they have that conversation also about the red jello and the green jello, mm. and you know, it's it's kind of it's Green's a film that, the future. Yeah, it's a film that's using color very conscientiously, um, and a film of 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 striking imagery, strikingly deployed, like. You know, very memorable images, actually. Mm. Um, so, anyway, um, to wrap up. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I more than liked it. There was applause at the end, and I think there are, you know, there are things that are absolutely extraordinary and magical and poetic about it. Um, but it's not without its flaws. Yeah, the ending is certainly magical and poetic, and that's why it got applause. It's a it's a really beautiful ending, mm. and it it tugs at the heartstrings a little bit. Yes. Um. Anyway, go see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we spoiled it, but you know, go see it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um. So we are on Facebook, Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, um, and get in touch if you have any comments, we really welcome them. So, uh, thank you and goodbye. (laughs) Very well done. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) We're professionals now. (laughs) All right.